Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. We are going to talk about the Fitch ratings downgrade of the United States and what, if anything, it means. We are going to talk about the eventification of the Taylor Swift tour and the Beyonce tour and maybe some other tours as well, although that's a big question mark. We are going to talk about business lunches and is it remotely sensible to care to stress <laughs> about what you eat in business lunch? I mean, seriously, can, what even people? Can you guess what Felix thinks? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to dive deep into the question of Amex points. Thank you so much for answering my question, which I had last week, about what should I do with my Amex points. You answered it. I will tell you what the answer is in Slate Plus. Do please subscribe to Slate Plus so that you get to listen to such insightful and brilliant segments as that. So that's all coming up on Slate Money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Elizabeth Spires. <laughs> Felix. Um, what do you know about Fitch ratings, and have you ever cared about them? Not really. I, I guess during the credit crisis of 08, ratings seemed relevant. I'm not sure that I care about it in the context of what we're about to talk about. But let's let's before we talk about the U.S. sovereign credit rating, which is a really weird and bizarre beast in and of itself, we should also first just talk about Fitch ratings because it's always been like the Phillips to the Sotheby's and Christie's that are Standard and Poor and Moody's, right? Like there are two big credit rating agencies, and then there's a third, and then between the three of them, they're called the three major credit rating agencies because there's no particular reason why Fitch shouldn't be considered as major as S&P and Moody's, but it really isn't. It's always been kind of an afterthought. It's like the RC Cola. There's Pepsi. Exactly. There's <laughs> but in any case, the, the RC Cola of the ratings world, and I apologize to anyone who works for Fitch, um, came out this week and declared that they were not changing the country rating for the United States. The country rating for the United States is still AAA. They were changing the rating on bonds issued by the U.S. government, which would include treasury bonds and various bonds that are guaranteed by the treasury, like the agency bonds from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So a huge amount of U.S. debt was downgraded from AAA to AA+. And this is just a really kind of conceptually weird thing to do. But when Standard & Poor's did it in 2011, because Fitch is 12 years behind the curve here, it caused quite a lot of chaos and conniption. Do you remember that, Emily? Yeah, I remember that. It was like a really big and significant feeling deal at the time. People were got very upset about it. It was a big political issue. Obama was in office. 
It was seen as like a black mark, I think, on his administration. Both sides tried to spin it. We have some of that now also, but it doesn't seem like it's just it's hard much to quieter it's the second time out because yeah. it's already happened. Well, and also there's bigger political news to contend with right yeah. now too. That's a really good point, right? Is that this is political news. It's not really economic or financial news. The All of the people making hay about this were politicians on one side or the other. The Democrats blamed the Republicans. The Republicans blamed the Democrats. Um, you know, the Democrats all came out and said, no, like everything that Fitch is complaining about is getting better under Biden. And the Republicans are like, this is clearly all Biden's fault because it happened under Biden. And all of this kind of mudslinging was incredibly... Um, whatever the opposite of illuminating was. If you go back to 2011, however, things were very different because people like me, and this is one of the many times in my life I've been completely wrong, people like me before 2011 would go around saying that the US AAA rating was sacrosanct and that the entire global financial architecture would fall apart if it disappeared. The idea being that US Treasury bonds are the risk-free interest rate off which every, everything else is priced. And so if you then wind up with a rating system where U.S. Treasury bonds are not AAA anymore, then that throws everything into chaos. And, you know, you wind up with a situation like, for instance, um, Fitch right now rates Microsoft higher than the U.S. government. Like Microsoft is, is, is a better credit than the U.S. government. So does that mean that Microsoft's bonds should trade at lower yields than U.S. government bonds. Like, all of these weird questions would, 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 would arise. Turns out, for all that there was a little bit of stock market wobbliness after the, after the S&P downgrade, the first important thing that happened was the Treasury bonds went up. You know, their yields went down after that downgrade because everyone kind of got worried. And when you're worried, what you do is you buy safe assets, and safe assets are Treasury bonds. So no one really took it seriously as a judgment on whether or not they should own treasury bonds. They took it seriously as a judgment on, oh, we should we should go risk off, you know, we should do this flight to safety. And after that happened, people realized that the credit rating on the US government is it doesn't behave like the credit rating on anyone else. Right. I was sort of thinking about that in very layman's terms <laughs> yesterday when I was thinking about this segment. Because all the the pieces that try to explain the rating system to like a general audience, they'll say things like, I think there was an NPR piece that said, think of it like your credit score. And so I started wondering, does Jeff Bezos have a credit score? And does it matter? Does, <laughs> does Mark no, Zuckerberg have a credit score? Like when those bankers yes. at First Republic gave him the 0% mortgage, were they like, Mark, first, we need to run a credit check on you. No. Like, exactly. is the exactly. US is kind of like that. And I think Matt Levine even mentioned that in his newsletter this week um, on the downgrade, he said some financial firms don't, they, they treat treasury bonds separate because Felix, you probably know more about this, but you know, some firms or products, they're only allowed to trade in certain grades of bonds. So you have a fund and it can only be in AAA bonds or it can only be in AA or whatever. They're different kinds of funds. And some of these funds, they have a different separate category for US treasuries. So yeah, it is a different separate category. The, if you have a, a fund that says, we only invest in AAA rated securities, it will actually say very very explicitly, and certainly since 2011, we only invest in AAA securities and US Treasury-backed securities. Mm -hmm. you know? Because 
the idea that there's credit risk to the U.S. government is not something that people really care about in in any kind of way that's visible in the markets. They they care about it on a conceptual level, and they'll do things like trade U.S. sovereign credit default swaps, which is a whole other conversation we can have if we're feeling very nerdy one day. But ultimately, the treasury market is the safest, the most liquid, the biggest market in the world, and it operates according to its own rules. The best way I can try and explain this is, is that every single bond yield has two components. There's the interest rate and there's the credit spread. The interest rate is basically, if you bought a treasury bond at that same maturity, how much does that treasury bond yield? And then the credit spread is like, how much extra am I going to have to be paid in order to take, to take the credit risk of this issuer? So by definition, there is no credit spread for the U.S. Treasury bonds because they are just the interest rate. So to try and conceptualize the treasury market or the bond market in a world where there is a credit spread to treasury bonds makes no sense because it'd be a credit spread over what? So to go back to the question of does this even matter, is there any information that's kind of pri- that's built into the downgrade that's actually useful that isn't already priced into the market? So there's a lot of information in that downgrade that is useful, but all of it was priced into the market. So what Fitch did was they articulated a series of worries around the sovereign finances of the U.S. government, which are real worries. They were worried that deficits are going to be increasing for the foreseeable future, that they are worried that the debt-to-GDP ratio is only going to go up and not going to go down, and this could become problematic. They are worried that there have been a series of showdowns in Congress over the debt ceiling, and that at any one of those showdowns, if things went a little bit sideways, we could end up with a potential default. They are worried about a lot of things which everyone knew about already, but they put them all together into one package and said, this is all so worrying that we don't think the US is really a AAA credit anymore. And I can kind of see where they're coming from. Like All of this is true. And if I had to place a credit rating on the United States, I wouldn't necessarily say it was AAA. I wouldn't say there was zero chance of default because I've written so much about the very real chance of default every single time there's a debt ceiling showdown. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but this isn't new. No, what, no, what's but no one, no one, yeah, no one is saying that it's new. Yeah, but why, so what's the, why now? You know, the, these are the chaotic budgeting process that we experience in nearly every cycle has been happening for years now. Yeah, the question of why Fitch did this now is an interesting one. Emily, do you have a, an answer for that? I don't know if I have an answer on why now, but I wanted to talk kind of what you were getting at, Felix, which is the United States probably doesn't deserve a AAA rating anymore. And friend of the pod, Robin Wigglesworth, had a good tweet that I thought kind of summed it up well, or I don't know if it's a tweet anymore, or an X or whatever. Um, He says, the downgrade doesn't matter to the standing of U.S. treasuries in the global financial system, but the fact that everyone was for months openly talking about a possible government default doesn't strike me as fitting for a triple A credit. And I think that's exactly it. Like the US, yeah, it didn't default. And we do have these um, standoffs often. And there's a government shutdown possibly coming up in the fall again. Um, Just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen, especially if you 
play with it and toy with that line every year, (laughs) every few years. I think this downgrade is kind of a sign of the increasing instability in sort of the global system right now. Um, we talk or about it the all the time. American system. I think. I think in particular the U.S. system. In the U.S. system, and and the U.S. system has been keeping a measure of stability politically and financially around the world, and that system is a little bit destabilized right now. If not destabilized, then under threat. It's. It, I, I would agree. I I completely agree. It's destabilized. Things are much more fraught. I wrote a whole book about the new not normal right. and how like there's a lot more volatility right now. And this is part and parcel of that. And so if I, you know, if you want if you ask me to answer Elizabeth's question about why now, I think that's the answer. Is that just everything has become more volatile and nothing is mean reverting anymore. Mm-hmm. It used to be that, you know, if we'd had if we had a, you know, weird, crazy debt ceiling standoff situation like we had in 2011, people would go, well, that was weird and crazy and worrying, and we're all going to have to make sure we don't go through that again. And we would sort of course correct and mean revert and then go back to where we were before. And now it's the other way around. Like If you have one of those, then it only becomes more likely you're going to have another one and another one and another one. And even if the chance of the default you know, in any given one of those episodes, it's only like 5%. You only need a handful of episodes for the probability of default to start becoming, you know, 50% or 70% or whatever. So we're in this downward vortex. If you look at governance, which was a key word that came up more than once in the Fitch downgrade, if you look at like how the, how, how the United States is governed, we've had um, the politicization of the Supreme Court, obviously, we've had January the 6th, we've had the loser of the election basically refusing to admit that he lost the election. We have clearly worse governance than we've ever had, and there's no particular indication that it's going to get any better. And I think that is as good a reason as any to downgrade right now. I mean, you don't think it was worse under Trump? I think... I feel like it was more chaotic and less predictable. It was definitely... Things were undoubtedly chaotic and unpredictable under Trump. There was this feeling that Trump might have been a temporary phenomenon and that once Trump was over, then we would go back to something approaching normal. And I think now that feeling is kind of dissipating and we're realizing that this kind of chaos with Kevin McCarthy running the house on a slender majority where he can't really deliver anything is kind of the new, like, what we have to get used to and that we're not going to revert to some glorious founding father vision of how the country should be run. Right. And I also think that to take it back to the the financial markets piece, I feel like the markets, I mean, they're kind of a resistant to change. Like, even though this might signal something bad for treasuries in the long term, like no one's going to change their behavior now because they like how it is and there's no alternative. Like, what are they going to do? You know, the treasuries right now are the safe haven. Like, there's nothing that can be done. Yeah, and, and that's the other sort of flip flip side to this is that in most of the bond universe, if there's a default, that is really bad for bondholders. And most investors, bond investors, pencil in what they call a recovery value for a bond. And they're like, if it defaults, we'll probably get back 25 cents on the dollar or 40 cents on the dollar, whatever that number is. But it's very low 
right? And that is why the fault is so bad. You borrow money and you get repaid. If you don't get repaid, you get you wind up with less than you lent, and that's you know you you lose money that way. In the event of U.S. default, the recovery value is going to be one hundred cents on the dollar. There is literally zero doubt about that. The cost of default to a lender in the medium term is zero. The cost of default to the global economy and the financial system in the short term could be absolutely enormous. It would cause enormous dislocations. There are massive repo markets that the entire financial system runs on, and no one knows what would happen if there was a default, and there would probably be like a bunch of very, very unpleasant chaos. But a U.S. Treasury default doesn't act in the same way that any other default does, in the way that like the lender doesn't get their money back, because the lender will get their money back. It works in a very different way of just like breaking a lot of the plumbing. One of the little slogans that I wheel out from time to time is that plumbing isn't architecture, and the broken plumbing can feel very bad when it's happening, and you get like you know emergency floods and shit, and you have to run around and and be very sad for a while, but ultimately you can fix plumbing. And ultimately, even if there was a default, that would end up getting fixed in one way or another. So that's another reason why people maybe care less about the US sovereign credit rating than they do about other credit ratings, because it's because it doesn't really ultimately determine whether they get paid back on their treasury bonds. And that also maybe explains why like, the stock market would fall even when the bond market rose in 2011 and even to a certain extent in, in 2023, this time around, because the people who get hurt from a U.S. Treasury default are not actually U.S. Treasury bondholders so much as they're everyone else who interacts with the financial system. But yeah, I think that's enough of that. We should have another segment on Taylor Swift. Eventification is what our producer has called this segment. Yeah. Or the, the economics of touring for musicians. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. A quick note about Slate Plus here. It is the thing that makes Slate money possible. Slate Plus is not just a little segment at the end of every episode of Slate Money, although it is definitely that. It is also the thing that means you get to listen to Slate Money without ads. It is also the thing that means you get to listen to Slow Burn and Political Gab Fest and Hit Parade and Hang Up and Listen no ads on any of those. Plus, you get to listen to their Slate Plus segments too. And if you're reading the Slate website, you can do that in an unlimited fashion because all articles, advice columns, and everything else become open to you that you will never hit the paywall. 
Sign up at slate.com slash money plus. Eventification. I love this word. Uh, Emily, I know you've written about this. What is eventification? It is the new normal. I know you love that phrase. Where a concert isn't just a concert that you go to over one night. It's an event. And you travel to go there. You travel to see Taylor Swift. And instead of spending one night maybe in LA, you spend two nights, three nights, and you really spend it up. You get new clothes. Maybe you get them even designed yourself or designed by someone else. You go to restaurants. You you really do it up. Um, you travel to Norway to see Beyonce, that kind of thing. More people are doing this. They're turning one-night events into three-night events, eventification. <laughs> How big is it? Like, I feel like it is Taylor Swift and Beyonce and me, but like, is it anyone else? So there's, I, I feel like this is part of, you know, festival culture and it's not really that new. But um, this morning I was thinking about this and I decided to ask a professional. So, Oh my I, God, you did reporting <laughs> for this? <laughs> well done. I live in a, a part of Brooklyn that I think of as dad band. Brooklyn, and not just because people listen to dad bands, but there are just a lot of dads who are in bands. So I texted my friend, and he's in Europe right now doing shows, and their official tour starts in September. And so I asked him, you know, does everybody have to tour now? Is that the only way to make money if you're a musician? And he responded that it kind of depends on the tier of artists. For middle and below, he said that I would say the primary way to make money is there is no way to make money. Oh. He said 10 years ago, you could probably sort it out with touring. But if you're middle and above, and you know that's Beyonce and Taylor Swift, you're making a lot of money off of not just the touring, but you know the merch sales. I think the interesting thing about the eventification is that so many people who are not Taylor Swift are making money, right? The, when you have an old-fashioned tour... Or even an, a festival, right? Because festivals generally happen out in the middle of nowhere somewhere and, like, they're very, um, you know, organized by the festival organizers. But a tour like Taylor Swift's tour, you know, happens at venues in cities. And historically, when, you know, even the Rolling Stones or U2 or some big touring act would arrive in the city, you know, the people in the city would buy tickets and then they'd go to the gig and then they'd go home. And the amount of economic activity that was caused by that tour was basically the sum total of money that was spent on the tickets, plus, you know, some rounding error for merch. What Emily is talking about is that there's a huge ancillary economy now around the era's tour for Taylor Swift, and to some extent around the Beyonce tour as well, where, you know, hotel rooms that normally go for $200 a night are going for $1,000 a night, where, you know, restaurants and... um that people fly to these gigs now mm -hmm, rather than exactly. just going in their hometown. And the total amount of money spent around the tour is probably some significant multiple of the total amount spent on tickets. Yeah, don't you think those are outlier situations? Oh, th well, this is exactly yeah. why I was saying, isn't that just Taylor Swift and Beyonce? Like, yeah. I, in terms of this eventification, like, this is, um, this is why I was asking Emily, like, how many artists have reached that level of eventification. And I think the answer so far is two. Yeah. I mean, there's very few artists that, right, have reached that level of eventification. But it is a new thing where, you know, people are traveling to different cities, flying to see these artists. Um, in some cases, because tickets abroad will be cheaper 
and accommodations cheaper <laughs> than in the U.S. Um, and and the and the travel and the, the for these events is showing up in like the economic data, like in the Fed's beige book. I think a few different or at least one region mentioned like Taylor Swift driving up prices for hotel rooms and such in their region. It's happening in a bunch of cities. And I wrote a little bit about this um, because it seemed like a fun economic story. And so often they're, they're not fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah. And, and one person I spoke to at Moody's was saying he thinks there's been this shift around remote work where people have more flexibility on Fridays and Mondays specifically so they can travel more and do this. And it's having a real effect economically on the country. And I kind of buy it. It makes sense to me. You can you can leave on Friday and do things in a way that you couldn't when you were like married to the office. I think I, th- I, th- I think this does really raise the bar for touring artists. Um one of the things that you know you're going to get if you go to a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce show is an unbelievably mind-blowing live performance with a gazillion costume changes and amazing sets and just everything choreographed within an inch of its life. And Taylor Swift will bring out all of the you know, celebrities and and there will be it will just be this experience unlike any other it's not that you're going to a place to listen to music right this is you're it's so much bigger than that and i think i think that elizabeth was right this kind of eventification is not new but i think in order for anyone who aspires to that level of touring to be able to reach that level i think what what i'm going to come out and say is that we're going to see more and more artists try to put together live shows that just blow you away on a level that it really does justify spending thousands of dollars on plane tickets and hotel rooms and, of course, concert tickets. And also, I mean, they don't have much of a choice, like, to follow up what Elizabeth found in her reporting in Dad Band Brooklyn. Artists don't make money from music anymore. At least that was um, a piece we read in preparation for the show from Marketplace. Basically, if you don't, touring is the way to make money. Because the 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 money you make off of streaming is so de minimis. It's a little bit like what we were talking about with the Hollywood writers, is that because Spotify has, you know, and, and other sort of music streaming services have reduced the barrier to entry in the music world so much. It's so much easier to become a recording artist than it used to be. That's why everyone in Brooklyn is in a band right now. Um the total amount of money, you know, even if the total amount of money is going up, and there is certain statistics saying that the total amount of money has now finally reached new highs, like it's higher than it was in the CD era or the LP era, um, you're spreading it among many, many more bands. It used to be very difficult to get signed if you were a band. And, you know, you would only get signed if you were very lucky and very talented. And then once you were signed, you would be eligible for your little slice of total music revenues. But now the slices are just much, much thinner than they used to be because it's so much easier to put put music out on platforms like Spotify. Yeah, that's also a problem, too, for touring as a business model because the market's getting oversaturated now that people are traveling again, more artists are going on tour because it's kind of the only way for them to monetize. Mm. So the, the, I feel like this is one of those 
winner-takes-all situations where the Beyonce's and Taylor Swift can create these kind of economics for themselves, but the average artist can't. Yeah, I, I saw, just to put some numbers on this, I saw one estimate that said that the Taylor Swift era's tour would cause $4.6 billion in increased economic activity. And honestly, I think that's an underestimate. And now she's announced new dates. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up being double that. Not that it's easy to measure. But yeah, the impact of that one tour is, I, I think it could really change the way that the music industry thinks about touring. Um, it'll be interesting to see who else can can compete at that level. Yeah, that's really the question. Who is the next Taylor Swift or Beyonce? Like, is this also like how it is in the movie industry where, I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing now about there are no more movie stars because that's just not how the economics of the industry work anymore. Well, there's a, there's only one movie star and even his latest movie kind of flopped. Who, um, who are you talking about? Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah, and he's Tom old. Cruise. Like, that's an old and he's movie old, star. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I'm going to say if... if like, I don't think Drake is going to do it, certainly not on this tour. If anyone else is going to enter that level of being able to do a big world tour and eventify it, it will probably be Bad Bunny. Hmm. But I don't think it's quite happened yet. He can do it in certain, he can certainly do it in, in like certain places, but I, I don't think he's quite managed to reach that level of like people will fly, you know across the world to to see him we will see let us know slate money at slate.com who has the potential to to be the next taylor swift and or beyonce in terms of eventification this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now we're going to talk about something really important, and that's lunch. Oh, my God. Okay, can we talk about business? Because this is, ah. Oh, my God. Yes, we need to talk about business lunches because what? <laughs> okay, this is this is this is like who was it? It was Elizabeth, right? You found this dumbass article <gasps> in the Wall Street Journal. It's not a hey, hey. Felix did not even want to do this segment because the the piece was about people having anxiety about going back to business lunches. And Felix's take is, who doesn't know how to do a business lunch? My my take is like, come on, people. We all know how to eat a fucking restaurant lunch. Like this is not rocket science. I think it's not that people don't know how to do it. It's that they don't like it. Yeah, I, I 100% know people who feel awkward, you know, eating in front of pe- other people who have some weird kind of social anxiety around, you know, public eating, for lack of a better That's not you know, what this, word. let's back up. 
Yeah, that's not right. what this so, case Emily, is can about. You explain, can you explain what the fucking problem is is here? Because I oh do goodness. not see the fucking problem. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay, the the piece in the Wall Street Journal is about how people are going out to lunch again, business lunches, which is different from all eating in restaurants or any lunch. These are specific business lunches yeah, where you're trying everyone to Everyone make... is out eating in restaurants right now. Like it is it is more popular than ever. So that's not the problem. No. So the business lunch is a different kind of animal where you're eating in front of someone else and you're trying to make a specific kind of impression on that other person, typically. Like maybe it's like a, like a sales relationship. It could be a colleague. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a job interview. There are dynamics there beyond the typical like, we just went out to a restaurant. We ate some food. So the piece lays out how people have a lot of anxiety at these business lunches. They're worried about what should they order. They don't want to like have a bunch of food on their face. They don't want to um, eat the passed around hors d'oeuvres and take a chicken wing and then their hands like all greasy and they can't shake hands. And the piece quotes, you know, like an etiquette consultant who tells people like avoid pasta because you get the sauce all over yourself. And everyone seems to want to order salads, which Elizabeth can explain why, but like everyone wants to order salads and then they leave the business lunch and they're still extremely hungry. And then they go get like a chicken parm sub or something. Do I have that right, Elizabeth? Okay. So, so first of all, Elizabeth, you're going to, you're going to explain this salad thing. (laughs) I I think this, so this was not in the article. This is just my pure speculation. And I've done this myself. I think people order salads because it it seems like a healthy, responsible thing to do. And Mm -hmm. that's what they want to project in a business. Uh, they, They want to make it seem that they're healthy and responsible because obviously you want to do business with someone who's healthy and responsible. And so therefore you're like, oh, this is someone who orders a salad. They, right. That must be a healthy and responsible person. Therefore, I will do business. Okay, whatever. Um. <laughs> well, you don't want – what if the person you're out to lunch with that you're considering doing business with has like three drinks and a, a giant steak and a big baked potato and then a massive dessert? Do you do you still do business with the person? I guess Felix doesn't care. But I feel like people yeah, are worried I, I about being judged care. for these things. Yes. So, so this is exactly the thing that really jumped out at me God, from this article, <laughs> was that literally every single person quoted in the article was coming at it at an angle of, I'm worried that I might get judged. There wasn't a single quote from a single person who was like, oh, yeah, I had lunch with someone once and they ordered a steak and I totally judged them. Like the the actual judging, there was no evidence that it ever happens. It was only fear of being judged. Interesting. Yeah, I think this this may be something. I, you don't strike me as a person who has social anxiety, like at all. <laughs> I have a little bit of it. So, you know, I, 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 I probably I hate business lunches for two reasons. One is because I am the person who orders the salad and then you just can't enjoy lunch. But also because it's so disruptive in the middle of the day. That's when I get a lot of work done. So I don't mind business drinks, but business lunches are just painful. And then if I eat half a salad, I'm still hungry. You just go end up getting a isn't, burrito an hour later. Isn't business drinks even more fraught than business lunches, yes. though? Because then you really are getting judged on, like, what you're drinking, how much you're drinking, yada, yada. And, like, God forbid you drink too know. much. I mean, I, I, don't, I never understand that part. Getting the second – do you get a second drink? Then I'm feeling a little weird, and then I don't. It's nighttime. I, I don't like that either. In in terms of anxieties around business lunches, and by the way, I should say that there is no particular reason why this article came out right now. This is a perennial article that could have been written 
15 years ago. There's nothing new in this article. There's nothing post-pandemic about this well, article. Well, no, there was the pandemic angle. Well, they, of course, they, they, they had to put the pandemic angle in there, but that was the dumbest angle of the whole thing, no? Okay, but like, well, we don't have to keep calling yes this and article no. like, I think that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are people who, because of the pandemic, you know, social anxiety is a bigger problem when you emerge from your pandemic cave and have to learn to socialize again have and to learn be how in an to office. eat in the restaurant yeah. again. I mean, so, so you know, Not I was trying to do to the sort of... Everyone has been to a million restaurants, like you feel yeah, like. I understand that, right? So this is this was this was me. I was trying to do like the, you know, check your privilege thing. Not everyone grew up going to restaurants. Not everyone knows how to behave in restaurants. If you are someone who, you know, has not been to a fancy restaurant before, it can be intimidating. Um, and I have, you know, I went for lunch this week, actually, um, I went to this uh, vegetarian restaurant in the financial district, um, where with because the person I was having lunch with is vegetarian, so I was like, "Yeah, this is this great restaurant in the tin building. We'll go there." And um, we ordered a. He's like, "What's good here?" I'm like, "You know, the dosa is great. It's kind of famous." So we ordered the dosa, and he was a little bit sort of unfamiliar with how doses work. And so like, you know, we were like, great, you just split down the middle, you have it, I have it. It was not a problem, right? <laughs> but there was a, I could know, I could see there was a little bit of sort of unfamiliarity and maybe like, I don't know exactly how this restaurant works. I'm like, you know, as someone who, you know, had chosen the restaurant, you know, I went to some lengths to try and put him at ease and say, oh, this is fun, you should do this and this is delicious and, you know, that kind of thing. So I totally understand that some people are a little bit can can find certain restaurants a little bit intimidating, and that's fine, and that's something you get over by going to restaurants and going to more business lunches. You know, that's like that's how it works. Um, the only time I ever really get intimidated in t in business lunches is when I'm paying and the bill is absolutely enormous, and I'm like, <laughs> oh shit, how am I going to get this through on expenses? <laughs> But like, you know, that's, I feel like we can, we can deal with that one. It's not the end of the world. My thing is like, I remember when I was at the legal magazine and I would take these like lawyers out to lunch because my editor was always like, every review, you got to take more lawyers out to lunch. You got to go to these lunches with the lawyers. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And then I would go to the lunches with the lawyers and I'd, I'd always be really hungry. I didn't do the thing one of the people in this piece does where they like eat a like a Big Mac before the lunch. I'd go hungry, excited, because I was young and poor and I was about to get an expensive lunch. And then I would order something that looked pretty delicious but wasn't too messy because of the reasons we already talked about. And I wonder if this is a little gendered too because you don't want to look disgusting while you're – not disgusting, but you know, you don't want to have a big messy lunch in front of someone else, especially one of these lawyers I was made to go out to lunch with. And then you have the lunch and you get your delicious food and then there's like – so much talking, like the lawyer is like just talking and talking and talking and the lawyer is not eating the food. Literally no one is judging you. I've never come across anyone who's ever judged anyone else on the basis of like how fast they were eating at a business lunch. It's just not something that happens. <laughs> People worry they, about that it might happen, but no but one would they doesn't tell you if that, were, if that was happening? Yeah. Would I they talk like, about it? Yeah, I feel like I would have heard something at some point over the past, like, 30 years of talking to people in and around business lunches. Like, you know, oh, that person eats a lot or something. Like, it's not something you ever hear. 
I mean, there was that one classic line in in Succession, right, where like Hugo took like you know too many pastries yes, at exactly. the buffet and and got but judged. That, but like that was that, that stood out. That supports our point. But that you know, stood a, out because it's just no, like <laughs> uh, no one does that. But what about the pass arounds? The the point in the piece about don't take the pass around hors d'oeuvres because then you have a drink in one hand and the hors d'oeuvres in the other hand and like how do you shake hands and you're just so constrained oh the, by the that? Ta- the tactics of cocktail parties I'm like I'm so over it I don't, I don't <laughs> care so it's it. not important none of it none of it there matters was, that was the one piece of that article that felt very outdated to me because it was like you need a free hand to give somebody a business card and shake their hands and I just thought no, you are you shaking hands still after pandemic yeah. and also who has business cards anymore like I that's true baffling but I but okay but when you're at one of those events and you do have the drink and the food at the same time, there is something like I do feel a little sloppy when that happens to me. So I, you guys don't feel that? Yeah. No, I do. I 100% feel sloppy. I feel sloppy <laughs> eating a dosa. I feel sloppy trying to, you know, navigate a slider while also having a white wine in my hand. I feel I like I I I feel sloppy all the time, and it's 100% fine. Like it is the least problematic problem in the world like interacting <laughs> yeah. with someone while feeling sloppy is it's called life people yeah, no, no one's suggesting that this is a defcon five level problem <laughs> no no but i do agree with emily that, that it, there is a little bit of a gendered aspect to this it's uh i think people expect that women in particular are gonna go for minimalism when it comes to eating in front of other people mm-hmm. like if, if i go into a business lunch and i order like the biggest messiest burger on the menu I think it does create a, an impression that it might not if you did that. Yeah, like what if Elizabeth got the ribs? <laughs> that would just be wild <laughs> at a business lunch. Like no one's going to do that. I think you're right. I think I think it probably <laughs> is gendered, and it's it, it does come down to this ultimate question of like, am I trying to make a good impression, and do I care what other people think of me? And maybe I'm an outlier in. Like at least just in terms of being a journalist, because when a journalist is taking someone out for lunch, like the purpose is not to make that person think good things about you. Mm. You know, the purpose is to learn what that person thinks about certain things. And if they, you know, if if the source that you're taking out thinks that you're a messy slob, like that is completely irrelevant to your job so long as you get the information that you want. Might help you actually tactically. Yeah. That's exactly. interesting. So, I'm going to get the ribs next time I take a source out Get the out ribs. To totally. <laughs> we should have a numbers round. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yes. So my number is 10, and that's percent. And this is from a Bloomberg story about a group of hackers in their 20s and teens who stole around $22 million worth of crypto from a crypto investor named Michael Turpin. And one of the teens in the story who's a hacker, but mostly was doing this via SIM swapping. It's a a kind of technique where basically you convince the service provider to uh, swap the phone number by impersonating whoever has the account. And this kid did this, he was 15 at the time, did this primarily by calling AT&T or Verizon or whoever the service provider is. And when they call customer service, asking people if they were willing to be bribed. And he said that 10% of them said yes, like, <laughs> all providers, which this is a little disturbing. So, uh, But I, I kind of <laughs> like this, right? But, you know, my my, um, my newsletter this week is about how 
anti-capitalism in the workforce has become normalized. And I really love the idea of you're some like phone support drudge way down in the org chart of Verizon or AT&T and probably not even working for that company or probably in some like outsourced phone support company in Argentina or something, right? Oh, yeah. One of, the, one of the guys said he had a specific guy in India who would do this for him. <laughs> and, and, and at that point, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm being treated like shit. I'm being paid like shit. And there's this person who's on the phone offering me a bribe, which is probably like more than my weekly salary. It's like, fuck, yeah, why not? I'm I I ten percent does not shock me. Seems at low. <laughs> also, I just want to mention that the twenty two million that the hacker stole was primarily a, a niche coin that I've never heard of called Triggers. Do either of you know what this is? Oh, I mean, there are so many mm-hmm. shit coins worth twenty two million. I know, but this million. one's this one's amazing. It's it's uh it was based on controlling internet connected smart firearms through the blockchain. Oh my god! Brilliant! <laughs> Brilliant! The greatest idea I've ever heard. Wait, that is I a mean, good idea. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because you can trace the firing of the weapons. It's on the blockchain. There'd be it's no crime. It's on the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, absolute genius. It's, yeah. That makes absolute total genius. sense to me. You should have to register each gunshot. Everyone, this is this this has now become an investment advice show, and you should all go out and buy triggers coins because this is clearly the future. Um. My number is 7.5%. And it's been a minute since we had a Larry Summers is wrong number. So I felt <laughs> I felt like I should have another Larry Summers is wrong number. La- Larry Summers declared in 2022, a year ago, that we would need two years of 7.5% unemployment in order to get inflation back down. Or five years of 6% unemployment, or one year of 10% unemployment. That was that was his macroeconomic wisdom coming out. Um, and I say that just because inflation is down and where is unemployment? As of the July jobs report, 3.5%. I feel like somebody needs to start a Larry Summers short fund. <laughs> like the, the reason, the reason I, I bring this up slightly more seriously, is because there was a period um, in 2022 when everyone was walking around going like, oh my God, Larry Summers was right. When everyone was saying like, he warned that the Biden stimulus would cause inflation and then we had the Biden stimulus and then we had inflation. And so clearly he was right. And so people are listening to him a little bit more than they used to. But if you look at how he was thinking about it, we need 10% unemployment in order to bring inflation down, you know. Well, Felix. Yeah. To be fair to Larry, inflation isn't (laughs) at the 2% target. Inflation is still elevated, and we don't know if it's going to come all the way down to 2 without increasing unemployment. Like, it's not over. It's, It's not over, but, you know, it is... Inflation is now down to a point where it is not something that people particularly worry about anymore. Mm-hmm. When inflation was like 8 9%, everyone was like, holy shit, what the fuck, mm-hmm. right? Now, it's kind of a background noise, you know? Like, it, there are reasons which we can debate, you know, why the Fed has a 2% target and not a 3% target. Yeah. But ultimately, when 
inflation is 2% or 3% or like very low single digits like that, it, it, it is not something that hurts people in a visible and painful way in the way that like 8 or 9% inflation does. Yeah. Yeah. It's been nice living in this new world of, what is it now, 4%? Well, it depends on on how you're counting, yeah. but it's it, the 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 headline CPI number now begins with a three, yeah. which is reassuring. Yes, and my eggs are back to normal. Thank and God. your eggs are back to normal. Thank your God. eggs have had deflation. Your he- your eggs have been coming down in praise. Yeah, that's all cracked up. Um. <laughs> are you cracking eggs? What is going on? Um, cracking egg jokes. Excellent news. Are you exactly. cracking? Are you cracking egg jokes? I just all right. Like um, to bring them up what 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 is your excellent number, Emily? <sighs> My number is $21 billion. That is the sales for Apple's services unit um, in its uh, quarter that it just announced numbers for. It, it's Apple's third quarter. I don't know how they do that. But um, this was a record number. Even as like iPhone sales are down, they're making money from these like the services unit, which seems like a lot. I think it made $80 billion overall for the quarter. So it's like a big chunk of money. And I was thinking about it because the services include like advertising money, Apple Care, iCloud storage, Apple Music, the the App Store, payment services. I was kind of thinking like this is the media business a little bit and Apple has it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not media. A little like, bit. I, a little I'm bit gonna, it like, is. Ve- very, very little of it is media. Yeah. And Apple has it. Like they're doing great. It's like a little extra cash Apple, for them. But but yeah, Apple Apple is not really a media company. It's not even close. Like other tech companies like Amazon are and certainly Google is a media company, right? But Amazon is not. Well, I mean Amazon I, like Apple is not. I mean it's not. Most no, of the it's services not. Revenue, it sells like if I buy hardware. If I, if I buy an app for ten bucks because it's a useful app for me, and Apple takes thirty percent of it, then that is three dollars of revenue for Apple. But that's not media. That's just them taking their cut of me buying stuff on the internet. Yeah, well, there's Apple News, but I, I think I feel like that's a very small. Yeah, that's min- minuscule, and, and, and like the Apple ad sales are tiny. Apple, it's also Apple Music, um, Apple TV Plus. I feel like, yeah. no, Apple's not a media company, but like this is where media business is now. It's with the tech companies. A little bit. Just a little bit. I, I will I will say that the little bit of Apple as media company that I have interacted with in the past couple of weeks is a TV show called Drops of God. Um which is fantastic, and I can recommend it. So if you have Apple TV+, Plus, or if you want to have it for a month or two, however long it takes you to watch a TV show, um, yeah, I can recommend Drops of God. That's it. That's the show, right? That's the show. We are going to have a Slate <laughs> Plus segment where we talk about Amex points because that is a subject that came that you guys were amazing at, sending us emails. So we're going to talk about your emails and Amex points in Slate Plus. Thanks to Patrick Fort for producing. Thanks for Ben Richmond for being amazing in the Brooklyn studio. And we will be back on Monday with the first episode of Slate Money Criminals. We have a little mini-series going on about great criminals in business history. And top of the list is Mr. Bernie Madoff. That's coming on Monday. <laughs> 